We're in the book of Matthew, and we're discussing the issue as I preach on this issue of how did Christ, as he walked on the earth, combat the forces of darkness? How did he stand against evil? How did he show us in his, what we call, active obedience, how to live the Christ life? And so today, as we continue the study of of Matthew, we're in Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. Matthew 8, verses 28 through 34. So hear the word of God. And when he came to the other side, after crossing the Sea of Galilee, when he came to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They begged him, saying, uh, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. May God bless the reading and understanding of his word. So this is an incredible account of how Christ dealt with the forces of darkness, and there's a statement in the worship guide from something called the Lausanne Covenant, who was adopted by 150 evangelical organizations in 1974 in Switzerland, and it starts off by saying this, we believe that we are engaged in constant spiritual warfare with the principalities and powers of evil who are seeking to overthrow Christ and to frustrate the task of world evangelization. We know our need to equip ourselves with God's armor and to fight this battle with the spiritual weapons of truth and prayer. So, so, so what I'm saying is that, understand this, every day we are fighting against the forces of darkness in a fallen world. Every day there are voices from the dark side that are trying to seduce us, to inhibit our obedience, to cause us to not repent, to give us a hardness of heart as far as obeying the Lord, to give us a spirit that is callous and unforgiving every day. And and the devil attacks us in custom-made ways. The way he attacks one individual or one family or one culture will be different than the way he attacks others. So we're, we're in constant warfare. There's a wonderful little book called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And in that book, he talks about the demon's strategies. And he says this, that if we get people to believe in vague definitions of forces and not concrete realities, 
then we will have succeeded in what we want to do, and that is to produce what Lewis says, materialistic magicians. People who believe only what they can see and touch, but also they have this spiritual dimension that is undefinable. And that was written in 1948. I would suggest to you today that we live in a culture of, to a large degree, materialist magicians. They believe that they believe in what they can see and they believe there's a spiritual force, but that force cannot be defined. And so it's very popular today. If you talk to people, they'll say something like this. I've heard it a hundred times. I am spiritual, but I'm not religious. In other words, I believe in a spiritual element and I believe that there is a spiritual element and that's why I, I, I meditate or I do this or I do that. But I don't think you can define it. It cannot be defined. So they're materialist magicians. And I would just say to you, church, if you're a follower of Christ, we believe in definitions. We believe there's one God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. We believe these things. And I would argue further, hear me, that, that, that Jesus says in Luke 10, we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength the totality of our being. I would argue strongly that our spirituality comes through the portal of our thinking. We're to think well. We're to define the gospel well. And as we do that, it gets into the very core of our emotions. is head, heart, and hands. So, so we are involved in this warfare. I was listening to a lecture this week by a, a woman who's real big into meditation. And it was really... A, wild. And she said this, the interviewer asked her, said, what do you think about God? And she said this, God is like a disco ball. Never heard that before. First of all, God is like a disco ball. Now, some of you are young, you don't understand that. A disco ball comes from the 70s, you know, that type of thing. And, and there was a, the disco ball would be green to some people, red, blue, purple, as it turned. And she said, one person sees red, one season person sees purple, one person sees green, and you combine all of their sights and there's some type of almost definition of who God is. We reject that. We believe that God has defined himself in the scripture, in the person of Jesus. That he is triune, he's eternal, he's glorious, he's God. And we believe that in the fullness of time, God became a man and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that living, perfect God died on the cross for our sins and rose victorious over death. We believe these things. And he ascended to heaven, and one day he's going to call history to a close. And the way we have a hope of heaven is to have an understanding that this eternal God, by his death upon the cross, died in my place. That's the gospel. So, so we believe these things, and I would say, think well. George Barna is a demographic person who's done surveys for years, and George Barna did a survey in 2009 of 1,900 self-described Christians, and this was the question, or the statement, and do you strongly agree, somewhat agree, disagree, or strongly disagree with the statement? Satan is not a living being but is a mere symbol of evil. Not a, not a living being, but just symbolic of evil. These are, these are self-described Christians. 
What percentage do you think said, I strongly agree with this or somewhat agree? The answer is 60%. Wow. 60%. 35% said that they somewhat disagreed or strongly disagreed. You should strongly disagree. 5% said they just didn't know. Oh, anyway, no comment. But I mean, so, so, so listen, Satan is a real being. He's a roaring lion, the Bible says. He wants to accuse you and belittle you. He wants to drink you down. And therefore, we put on the full armor of God. That's why we pray. That's why we sit under the authority of the Bible. So, so you see in this passage how Jesus deals with the reality of the devil. The, the, the devil's sly. I'm, I just finished a book I recommend a man by a man named Hampton Sides. It's about the Korean conflict. It's entitled on desperate ground. It's about the Korean conflict in 1950 when our, our Marines and our army pushed the North Korean army all the way up out of North Korea after they came across and were attacking the South. And we pushed them up and we said, this is, this is really easy picking. The army's not that many. They're not very trained. They're not, this is the, we just pushed them up. And there were some people saying, the Chinese are going to jump in this war. The Chinese are going to jump in here. Be very careful. MacArthur didn't believe that. Harry Truman didn't believe it. There was a Marine general named Smith who believed it. But in early November, 200,000 Chinese soldiers came charging across the northern border against 30,000 Marines. 30,000 Marines and Army personnel. 200,000. And he talked about the incredible fight that pursued and how it was 34 degrees below zero and how these men suffered incredible deprivation. And how they broke out of an encirclement at the Battle of the Chozon Reservoir. And, and these 30,000 men were able to get to the coast and go south and fight another day. But I, as I read that, I thought, that's just like the devil. He lulls you into sleep. He lulls you asleep. He lulls you asleep. And then, boom, he hits you. We're in the midst of warfare, of a spiritual conflict. Understand that. So I'm look at this text. I'm going to give you three principles and make some application. Number one, these men who were possessed of demons, there's a parallel account in Luke and in Mark. And in the parallel accounts, it talks about the fact that, that, that these men were, would live in the outer regions of tombs. Tombs had an outer court, and they would reside in these tombs and live by themselves. And they would scream, and they would cut themselves with rocks. And the scripture says that no chain could hold them. And they ran around without any clothes on, and it made it dangerous to go by there. It says nobody could control them. Matthew says they were, they were so fierce that no one could even pass that way, and they were horrendous people who just tormented those around them. And, and so the people around them looked at these people, and they said, basically, these people who scream and carry on and cut themselves and can't be held with chains, they are basically non-persons. And here's my, my point. If, non, if you believe that some people are non-persons, they can be ignored, belittled, or ill-treated. If you ever think, well, I'm a believer, and we know the Bible says that all people are made in the image of God, therefore, every man is worthy of respect and Christian love, in spite of their socioeconomics, their zip code, their ethnicities, their nationalities, but I'm a little bit more human than other people. 
You ever think that? My, my, my group, my family, we're just a, a, a little bit better. If you ever think that, that's from the pit of hell. Winston Churchill was one of my favorite people, maybe the greatest leader of the 20th century. One day Churchill, the story goes, was having a emotional meltdown, was saying some very harsh things to one of the men that worked for him. And the man corrected Churchill, who was a professing Anglican, and he said, I remind you, Mr. Prime Minister, that the Book of Common Prayer says that we are all miserable sinners. You know, the Book of Common Prayer says, God have mercy on us, and the congregation says, because we're all miserable sinners. By the grace of the cross, forgive our sins, answer, because we're all miserable sinners. They say miserable sinners several times. And so he was just quoting the Book of Common Prayer. And Churchill stopped in his tracks, and he said, you're right. We are all worms, but I am a glowworm. Well, it's another great witticism by Churchill. But listen to me. If you ever stop and say, we're all worms, but I am a glowworm, you've missed the gospel. So, so non-persons can be ignored, belittled, or ill-treated. So let me make a couple of statements here. This past February was Black History Month, and the more I read and study, the more I, I feel really feel shame when it comes to how so many well Christians have treated African Americans in 1857. 1857, what many people call the most ridiculous decision ever made by the Supreme Court. By a vote of seven to two in the Dred Scott case, the Supreme Court voted, quote, that a slave whose ancestors were imported and sold as slaves could not be a U.S. citizen and had no standing to sue in federal court, close quote. In other words, African Americans were non-persons. Or they may be people, but they're not quite the people that we are. That led to, as you wouldn't understand the war between the states or the Civil War. Listen, 630 to 650,000 Americans died in the Civil War out of a country with 32 million people. I mean, just you do the math. Let, let, me, let me just take a, just listen to me. World War I, we lost 117,000 men. World War II, we lost 407,000 men. Korea, 33,000 men. Vietnam, 58,000 men. Hear me. Those four wars combined still do not total the bloodshed that was poured out from 1861 to 1865. It's horrible. In 1868, the 14th Amendment was passed, which granted full citizenship to African Americans. 1868. 1896. There was a law passed in 1892 in Louisiana where they said that we're going to have on a railway system in Louisiana, we're going to have a whites-only car and a blacks-only car, and they, the blacks can't sit with the whites. A man named Homer Plessy who worked for the railroad said, no, I'm going to sit where I want to sit. 
So Plessy versus Ferguson goes to the Supreme Court, 1896. 1896, after the war between the states, after the 14th Amendment, our Supreme Court voted seven to one in something called separate but equal, or segregation. Separate but equal. The one dissenting vote, this is interesting, was a man named John Marshall Harlan, whose grandson also sat on the Supreme Court. John Marshall Harlan was from Kentucky. He came from a family that owned slaves. He owned slaves, later repented of that. He was the Attorney General of Kentucky during the war between the states. And he wrote about how separate but equal is inherently unequal. And when you read, this, read the history, this is really fascinating. This is you, you guys need to read history. You drill down, it will say that John Marshall Harlan was a, quote, conservative Christian, close quote. In other words, John, and he, he was a Presbyterian. He taught a men's Bible study for 25 years in Washington while he sat on the Supreme Court every Sunday. He taught the Word of God. And what, 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 what John Marshall Harlan was saying is, my heart sits under the authority of Scripture. I cannot, I, I cannot support this with, with Scripture. It's, it's amazing to me. And I thought about Martin Luther Back to 1521, there's a place called the Diet of Worms. He started the Reformation. He's a simple monk. The imperial powers of Europe are arrayed against him, and they have all of his books on the table. He wrote a lot of books. And they said, Martin Luther, you've got to repent of what you've said. And he says, give me a night to think. And he comes back the next day, and he makes this statement, which is one of the greatest statements ever made in the history of mankind. This is what Luther said, knowing that when he said this, he would probably be killed. He really thought he was going to be killed. He says, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And what he says is that the popes and councils and the Supreme Court and pastors err. But this does not. This does not. And that's what John Marshall Harlan was saying. Of course, you know, 1954, Brown versus Board of Education said that segregation is wrong. Listen to me. As I study history and read about this, you cannot, to a degree, be responsible for what you do not know. And I would say oftentimes, we are not aware of the burden that we've placed on other people. It is with great sadness that I read that in 1957, 57, a leader of the Southern Baptist Convention that I respect very much came to Columbia and spoke to the House, the legislative body, and he said that segregation was good and proper and, 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 and fine. It breaks my heart. Uh, there, there are people that are my heroes that talked about the Bible supporting slavery. And I'm going, the Bible never supports chattel slavery. It just doesn't. And I, I sit and I put my head in my hands and I go, how did they get here? How did they get here? And so I say to you, church, today, uh, whenever you define somebody as being less of a person than you are, you can abuse them, you can ill-treat them, whether you're gender bashing, you can belittle people in the LGBTQ movement, 
they're made in the image of God and they deserve respect and Christian love. I mean, hear me. You cannot be responsible for what you do not know. You know these things. And so I, I thought about African-American friends and as, as I get to know them, I want to say to them, thank you for not walking in bitterness because you could, you could. Thank you that the cross is our point of reference. See, non-persons can be belittled. I, I think of in our own recent time as, a, as in our world, 1994, not that long ago, there was a tiny country in Africa, Central Africa called Rwanda, 11 million people. The population of North Carolina, kind of, sort of. And in a few weeks, the, 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 a group called the Houthis turned against their neighbors, the Tutsis, and in a few weeks, they macheted 800,000 people to death. They didn't have guns. They took machetes and murdered their neighbors. And as they did so, they called out this, kill the cockroaches. Kill the cockroaches. And I say that if we look at people as being less than us or subhuman, you can justify anything. Or I think about this 1992 to 1995 and how Serbia was participating in the ethnic cleansing of Bosnia because they were less than human. I think about the Nazi movement where the Nazis basically said, if we kill the Jews and the Slavs and the mentally deranged or the homosexuals, we may be doing them a favor because we believe in reincarnation and they may come back as a pure Aryan. What a bunch of junk. Non-persons. And to think about the precious gift of life. Yesterday I was uh, standing in line waiting for an egg and chicken biscuit at Chick-fil-A. And I looked up, and there's a guy coming in who's Down syndrome, had a beard, and he's about 35. And he was laughing, and there were two younger women with him. One had driven the car, and he came in. He was laughing. It was, most of the Down children, people I've met, are, are just happy. They're just happy. And he came up, stood next to me, and I looked down and said, good morning. We made eye contact. He says, good morning. He said, having a good day? I said, I really am. And he said, let me introduce you to my wife. A young woman who knew him, and she shook her head and started laughing. He said, this is my wife. And I said, wow. He said, aren't I a lucky guy? And he started laughing and putting his hands in and started pointing her. I said, man, you are very lucky. And I just thought, what a precious, precious thing is life. What a precious gift. So I want to address another issue about non-persons. And but before I start, let me, I want to say this very clearly and very strongly. I'm going to talk about abortion again. I talked about it three weeks ago. Things are happening in our culture at such a rapid pace that we've got to sit up and say, this is what's going on. So, there are people here today in all of our services, there are going to be people here today who have aborted children. There are going to be men here who drove their fiancés or their wives or their girlfriend to the abortion clinic. There are going to be parents who drove their daughter to the abortion clinic. And whenever you hear this talked about, you just want to die. And let, let me say this, the blood of Jesus covers our sins. There is, uh, maybe there are way, uh, the, the, the vast majority, I mean 98.6% 
of the people here have a sin or sins that has went on during a period in their lives of which they are enormously shamed over. I do. And, and so when you hear things talked about, you feel shame. There, there's forgiveness. If I didn't believe there was forgiveness because of the work of Christ on the cross, I would not be standing here. If, if, if you knew some of the thoughts that go through my mind, you would never sit here and listen to me preach. If I knew the thoughts that go through your mind, I wouldn't let you on the church property. I mean, really, think about it. So, so I'm, I'm not here to, but I'm here to hold up the standard of God and say, look, look. So, so there's forgiveness. I, I want you to hear that. So let me give you this. There's, when people hear about an issue, whatever it is, that may have been part of their past, and they're not believers, here's what happens. They feel shame. And, and then Ephesians 4 says that non-believers um, who walk in the futility of their minds and they're darkened in their understanding. You don't accept the things of God and you push them away and so you're darkened in your understanding. You don't accept God's reality, God's standards, and you, go, you, push, and, and you push the small, still small voice away and you push it and you push it. Listen to me. And, and you get darkened in your understanding. Therefore, you're involved in movements where you just redefine sin. Or you compare and you say, well, I may have done that, but I'm not near as bad as this person. That's being darkened in your understanding. Um, and, and it happens all the time. If you're a believer, this is what you do. You feel shame. You go this one, next one. You feel shame, and then you run to the cross and you have thanksgiving and forgiveness in your heart. Or, or you just read the scripture and you say, blessed be the Lord, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed or happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as with the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And I've said, you know, listen, listen, run to the cross. When you hear shame and you hear, run to the cross and say, Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of sin. Because see, see, see but, but part of that is a resolve to do what is right. There's a statement in 2 Corinthians 7 about, about godly sorrow or grief or repentance. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 11. It says this. For see what eagerness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves and what indignation, what fear, what longing, and what zeal. What punishment? At every point, you proved yourself innocent in this matter. And what Paul is saying is that you wanted to do the right thing. See, when you feel shame and you feel conviction, you feel guilt, you run to the cross and say, man, I want to do the right thing. I want to honor the Lord. 
So don't let the devil beat you up with that one sin or that time in your life. Because he's got it, man. He's got it. He's like 200,000 communist Chinese coming over the north border, pushing back. See, 2 Corinthians says, we comfort ourselves with the comfort we have received from the Lord in chapter 1. I believe with all my heart that here's the way it works. The best person to walk with somebody broken over alcohol or abuse or drug abuse is somebody who's a recovering substance abuse person. They get it. The best person to walk with somebody that's dealing with runaway sexual appetites that cannot be controlled but they want to is somebody who's walked those paths. And it happens. The best person to walk with parents of children whose children are breaking their hearts because of their disobedience and disregard are parents that have walked those very hard and difficult paths. You see, that's what God does in our hearts. So, so, so part of the shame is, is, is saying, I'm running the cross for forgiveness and I resolve to do what is good and right and true. Therefore, something happened this week that literally uh, took my breath away. There was a bill introduced in the U.S. Senate by Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska. Ben Sass is a very committed, outspoken evangelical Christian. He's written two books that I've read. One is entitled The Vanishing American Adult, wonderful book. The other is a book entitled Them, How to Heal the Breach in America. And they're both very readable, very good. He's a bright, well-thought, godly man. But the, basically, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act stated this, that in a botched abortion, and it does happen, and a botched abortion, very late term, when the baby is born alive, the law, this law, if it passed, would require a physician or a healthcare worker to work hard to make sure that that baby has the ability to live. It's very simple. Instead of letting it starve to death, that, it's a simple bill. It's, it's just simple. I remember being in Carthage in northern Tunisia and going on a tour with a local believer and talked about the infanticide of Carthage before the gospel came in. And he took us down to this large cave. And in this large cave, there were little white rocks, all over, hundreds of them. And he said, this represents, we believe, where children were just brought down here and left to die. They, they were not wanted, they were just left to die. And there are cases like that all over North Africa. And I just thought, God have mercy upon us. The U.S. Senate vote on this, it was voted 53 in 4, 47 against. It requires 60 votes for a law to go forward in the U.S. Senate, so the bill died. It's a very basic bill. Three members of one political party crossed the aisle to vote with another party, but 44 members of the same party were in lockstep for this. And, um, uh, 44 United States senators voted for infanticide. They voted for what went on in Carthage in 300 BC. It's, it's a horrible thing. And, and I just, I, I, I can't, um, I, I just, I, I can't, I 
can't get over it. Um, that, that's our culture. This is a quote, I think, I've got here by, by Senator Sass. He said, public officials at all levels and in every party should be able to condemn infanticide and come to the defense of the weakest members of our society. Recognizing the quality of every person should not be a cheap campaign line. It is a core American promise, i.e. life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So church in 2011, 2012, the Florida legislative body had the same discussion about the same type of bill. And if you go online, you can YouTube the discussion in the subcommittee. And there's a group of representatives asking questions. And one person standing there, I think is a neonatologist, maybe OBGYN, but he's, he's talking about botched abortions and how a certain amount of children are born alive and, and he, or aborted alive. And he said this, he says, we know of this many children that have experienced this, he said, that have been reported. He said, let me underscore the fact a lot of these aren't reported in his opinion. He said, it happens. It happens. They asked him questions. They brought in another person, a young woman from Planned Parenthood. And they were asking questions. And, and she said, well, our, our core commitment is that the, 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 the life of, of the fetus and basically the survival of the fetus is a matter between the patient and her physician. That's our standard. One of the representatives says, well, can I ask you a question? He says, yes. It shouldn't it be between the physician and the patient's plural? Because if a child is alive, you have the mother and the baby on a still gurney. And she said, that's a very difficult issue. But we would still say, between the singular patient and her doctor. Let me say this, just in all honesty. And then she said this, this is a hard or difficult issue. Church, the life is filled with difficult issues. I mean, every one of us faces difficult issues probably every other week or every week. But saying that a, a, a breathing, crying baby on a steel gurney that has just been born, we're not sure that that is life, is not a difficult question. I mean, come on. Come on. So, so when I call, non, call persons non-persons because of ethnicity or, or whatever, something inside me dies because I grieve the Holy Spirit if I'm a believer. Or something inside me dies because I push back the revelation of God. Again, Ephesians 4 says this. They're, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is due them in them due to the hardening of their hearts. When people say no, no, no to the voice of God, there's an ignorance that comes over the mind and the psyche of a person. I want to say is, is God have mercy upon us. Point number two. All authority in this text, all authority is given to the Lord Christ. Right before that, Jesus commands a tsunami storm to be still, be quiet, boom, the storm flees. In the count after this, 
there's a man who is brought before him who is paralyzed, and Jesus says, which is easier to say, take up your mat and walk, or to say your sins are forgiven? And he says, so that you know I can do both, because saying somebody's sins are forgiven is something internal, but taking up your mat and walk is observable. I want to say to this man, take up your mat and walk, and he did. So Jesus calmed storms. He is the Lord of the demonic realm, and he forgives sin. Jesus has all authority, and his goodness and his glory flow from the wonder of the cross. Romans 8, 32, how will God not also, not also, along with the one who forgives our sins and died on the cross for our sins, give us all things that we need, basically. Number three, there are responses that are really interesting in this text. The, the first response is a begging of Jesus. Verse 30, Matthew 8, a large a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Verse 34, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when he saw them, they begged him to leave their region. Begged. So, so, so there, there is a, a, a begging of Christ. See, see, the, the demons knew, this is, listen, the demons knew who Jesus was. They cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time, before the cross, before the defeat of the devil? Now, there are people today here who, you, you know the history of Jesus, and you say, I believe he's the Son of God. The demons believe that. But in reality, you're saying in your heart, leave, leave. I'm going to call the shots. You don't have all authority in my life. And in the most incredulous decision ever made by the town council, the whole town goes out and it says in Luke that they see the demon-possessed man clothed and in his right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus and they begged Jesus to leave. <laughs> You've got Almighty God in your midst and you beg him to leave. Some of us are doing that today. And it says this in the Luke account. Luke chapter 8, verse 35, when they saw the man sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed in his right mind, they were afraid. They were afraid. And then it says later in that then the people of the surrounding country asked him to depart from them for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got in the boat and returned. I asked myself, why, why were they afraid of Jesus? Here's my answer. I may be totally wrong. I think they were afraid of Jesus because maybe they had heard about Jesus putting to, making the storm go away. And, and here, here's a man who says a word 
and demons go out of the men. And when, the, and when the, the, the pig farmers went to tell the town, it says they talked about the death of the pigs, but especially how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Especially. So the, the, the main topic was not the pigs. The main topic was, was this man. And so they come in and they see, they see this man sitting in his right man. This guy used to shriek and cut himself with stones, and you couldn't restrain him with a chain. And he made everybody miserable who went by. They feared for their physical safety. And this man is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Here's why they were afraid. We can't control this guy. This is way beyond us. And when you see Almighty God who made the heavens and the earth and who has no beginning and who has no end, there's a reason to be afraid until you see the cross. See, the, the cross is a statement that the good shepherd says, come, come. Okay, Martin Luther died in 1546. I love Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a monk and he was tormented by the holiness of God. And, and Martin Luther was tormented. He said, how can I ever be made right in the presence of God? God gives me all these standards and, and I, I, don't, I don't ever measure up. I, I do all these works of supererogation or whatever you call it. And I just, I don't measure up. I don't measure up. I don't measure up. I don't measure up. I can't do it. And some well-meaning fellow monks said to him, Luther, don't worry about these things. Just love God. Just love God. This is what Luther said. He wrote in a journal. I don't think he ever said it out loud. He said, love God. I hated him. I hated him because I, I want to have acceptance before him and come before him, but he has all these standards and I can never measure up. Until Luther studied Romans and he saw the glory of sins forgiven by the cross of Jesus alone. There's nothing he could do alone. And so Luther came to understand who Christ was who died on the cross for his sins. And he said this, when I understood that, it was as if the doors of paradise were swung open for me. <laughs> do, do, you understand, do, you get, do you get that? Do you understand the forgiveness of sins, the, 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 the most horrible episode in your life, forgiven by the work of Jesus, that you're clean before him? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, it, see, that, that's the glory of the gospel. So, so Anyway, there's response one is beg Jesus to leave. Response number two, I thought about in, in John chapter four, we're finished in five minutes, six minutes. In John chapter four, there's a Samaritan woman. You've been around very long in the church. You've heard this story. Samaritans hated Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. Jews thought they were half-breeds, didn't worship rightly. And so Jesus befriends a Samaritan woman who comes to draw her water at noon because she was an outcast from the tribes of the outcast, because she was an immoral woman. And so everybody else went early in the morning to get their water, talked, and had a good time. She comes in the heat of the day because no one else is there. Jesus is by himself. And he says, can you give me some water? And she says, why? You're a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi. You're talking to me. And Jesus says, go call your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with isn't your husband. And she said, wow. Ooh, who told you? And they have this dialogue, and she goes back into the town, and she says to the townspeople, 
I want you to meet this guy who's told me everything that I have ever done. And the townspeople, knowing the type of woman she had been, thought, that's a lot of stuff to know. That's a laundry list of a lot of really bad stuff. And so they come out and they hear Jesus and they say, come back with us and teach us. And he stayed with him for two days. I can't wait to get to heaven because I'm going to say to one of the angels, put on the video of Jesus teaching the Samaritans from John 4. That's going to be a wild teaching session. There are people here who are like the Samaritans. You're considering the man and the message. You're not there yet, but you're considering it. You're considering who Christ is. I'm glad you're here. Believe the good news about Jesus. Take a step across the line from unbelief to belief. Then there's a third group represented by the healed, demon-possessed men. You're sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in your right mind. You're worshipers. You see the greatness of the cross, and you worship. And you say, he has all authority. Now, one big application statement. In Mark, it says this. The demons, they, they, they did not permit him, but they said to him, he said, the demon-possessed man want to go with Jesus. He said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the 10 cities of Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. And then the account from Luke says this. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So here's my application. Jesus says, go to us today. Go. Go to your hometown. Go to your family. Go to your work. Go to your subdivision, go to your barracks, go to your dormitory, go to, your, go to the marketplace and tell people what the Lord has done for you. God, forgive me, forgive us for not going and speaking. So we're reading a wonderful book in our, most of our small groups called God's Spaces. I think I'm right. And it's just how to ask questions and just befriend people. So here, here's, my, here, here's my assignment to you, okay? It's assignment. April is the 21st, excuse me, Easter is the 21st of April. So we're just a few weeks away from Easter. And as we we approach Easter, be praying for that one person, those two people, those three people that you can start just talking to and involve in a conversation about the Easter season. So here's here's your assignment. Check out person, waiter, waitress, guy changing the oil in your car, neighbor, friend. Ask this question. You ready? Who do you think Jesus is? That's it. And whatever they say, your response is, thank you, that's very interesting. That's it. But it's going to open the door for another conversation. Or if you want to go a step further, you can say, you know, Easter's April 21st. No, I go to church. I claim to be a Christian. We believe Jesus rose from the dead. What do you think happened on Easter. 
And whatever they say, what is your response? That's interesting. I mean, they may say something just weird, but your response is not, oh, dude, good grief, where did you get that? You know, you say, no, that's interesting. And it just opens the door. Listen, every one of us, you can do this. I went to church Sunday and the pastor said, I want to ask somebody a question, so I'm kind of doing that. Can you just do that so I can fulfill what I've been asked to do? Sure. Who do you think Jesus was? Wow, that's interesting. Thanks. Do that. Speak his name. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for um, this text. Thank you that you loved and embraced and cared for um, screaming, um, non-chained, filthy, unclothed demoniacs. And as you spoke to them, they um, were clothed in the right mind. It's amazing. And thank you that you've spoken the gospel to us, many of us. Thank you that you're in the process of healing and working in us. Lord, forgive us for looking at groups of people or nationalities or people that are maybe physically or mentally challenged as people, but not quite as good as we are. Forgive us for that. Forgive us, Lord. We're looking at ethnicities and saying, well, yeah, forgive us. May we loudly state every day as we walk among people of different stripes and different gifts and different persuasions that all people are made in the image of God and they're worthy of respect and Christian love. Uh, forgive us, Lord, for a history. Many of us have a history of, uh, that makes us shameful. Help us to be responsible. Thank you for brothers and sisters who care. Uh, Lord, please, 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 please give us hearts for people. Please uh, help us to walk with people who are in process and are considering the man and his message. And may they come to faith in Jesus. May they be saved and have the hope of heaven. Do not let us harden our hearts by walking in disobedience. So, Lord, please deal with us. Bless us. Encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.